0: NASA
1: 557 contact tower, 128.15. Caution. Caution. Manual. Fuel. Manual.
0: Fuel. I'm John Golia.
1: I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Cruz. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives
0: on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for
1: the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association or PAMA and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your returns just for listening to the show.
0: We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead.
1: Well, hello, John. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Uh, We are missing our third wheel. It is now just you and me today. Todd's off aviating or doing something in the wild blue yonder. Who knows what that may be, but uh, it's good to be with you. And I know that uh, I've been, again, stealth for the last couple of episodes. Uh, Just a lot of work going on, a lot of accidents, including some recent accidents that we're going to talk about. One in particular today, we're going to talk about a Pilatus PC-12 that recently crashed uh, coming out of Reno, Tahoe Airport, heading to Salt Lake City back on February 24th. And there, of course, been a lot of speculation since that accident. And again, John, you and I have gone through this. We've talked about it on previous shows. I am tired of these junior investigators who, within 24 or 48 hours, think they have it all worked out, figured out, and they put out false information, not just bad information, false information. And uh, one of the most recent ones I just saw from a junior investigator, he was describing the Pilatus PC-12 and why the airplane has a T-tail. And he said that they put the T-tail on the airplane so uh, so that rocks wouldn't hit the horizontal stabilizer. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of in my life. And this guy is supposedly an airline pilot. So uh, come on, The reason there's a T-tail is because of that big cargo door. This airplane was originally designed for hauling cargo. That's why they put the big door on the back. And of course, you don't want to have a low-hung horizontal stabilizer that if you're trying to move a forklift or some cargo pallet in there, you're banging on the horizontal stabilizer. So, I mean, it's just, if you're going to talk about it, then stay in your wheelhouse. And unfortunately, accident investigation by these junior investigators is not in their wheelhouse.
0: You know, as I review all the accidents before we put them on the show, uh, I see that over and over because I search all the, all the sites looking for information. And, you know, I wouldn't discount uh, those sources of information. That's why I go to them, see what other people are saying. But all too often, it's all BS. You know, it's a lot of assumptions and a lot of speculation uh, in which we say up front that If we do any speculation, we're going to tell you it's speculation. But they don't do that. They just go off and and, uh, and put their two cents in everywhere, even when they don't have two cents to put in.
1: And the sad thing is, is that, you know, these guys don't understand data. They think they do. And, uh, you know, listening to uh, this particular person, um, they said, oh, yeah, this is a classic, classic sign based on the data. Of spatial disorientation not in any way shape or form and and when you look at the adsb data and you start to analyze each of the data points this isn't classic spatial disorientation but then again when you're not an investigator and you've never done x investigations involving true spatial disorientation you have no basis of knowledge to draw on so
0: yeah sometimes i think that's a cop-out on a lot of people's parts it's just call it that when they don't know anything else to to blame it on but there's a, there's a number of issues that uh, need to be addressed here and so you know what greg why don't we take this from the top you just showed up on the scene and you're freezing your butt off and and now, what what are you going to look for what are you going to do
1: well john with this accident like any other accident you're going to break it down into multiple parts of course the first part with this particular accident is doing the on-scene investigation. That is trying to account for the entire aircraft. Uh, We know the airplane was up at 19,400 feet and then started on its way down. It's obvious uh, based on the initial um, overview of the wreckage at the accident site that several parts of the airplane did come off in flight, horizontal stabs and, and portion of the right wing. So now from a collective standpoint, It's all about uh, not only documenting the wreckage at the accident site, but looking at where these parts fell and looking at how they separated from the aircraft, because that can contribute to the storyline. Again, there's been a lot of speculation that the pilot lost control and pulled the horizontal stab and part of the wing off, uh, you know, during the uncontrolled descent. I don't know how you can come up with that, having never looked at the wreckage. You sure aren't going to get that out of looking at pictures because you have to determine was the loss of control, this uh, spiraling dive, if you will, coming down from 19,000 plus feet, the result of a pilot loss of control and during the the attempt to regain control, uh, overstressing the aircraft caused parts to separate, or Did the aircraft come apart in the air, which resulted in a loss of control that the pilot, um, you know, had (laughs) had no no uh, capability of of ever regaining control of the airplane? You got to determine what happened first. And so, accounting for the aircraft, you still have to look at any other evidence of mechanical malfunction or failure. You have to look at systems malfunction or failure. It's evident from the ADSB data that I've looked at that this airplane was on autopilot for most of the flight. And so, the question is is the integrity of the autopilot, the autopilot system, and the flight controls that the autopilot controls? Is the integrity there to determine whether or not the autopilot operated as uh, as advertised and as intended? So you're going to get into the aircraft systems. You're going to get into the aircraft structures to determine what happened first. Did the airplane come apart and, lo- and result in a loss of control by the pilot, or did the pilot lose control and break the airplane apart? Now, that being said. We know that there was, of course, IMC conditions. We do know that there were areas of uh, severe, moderate uh, turbulence to severe turbulence. Did that have an influence on the way the structure of the aircraft came apart? All of these things, yes, we're going to look at as an investigator out at the accident site because that is the, uh, the primary place where the wreckage is basically undisturbed. Now, the pictures that you and I have both looked at, the videos that the NTSB posted, it is evident that the wreckage has been disturbed by first responders primarily to recover the victims. So now you have to ferret out fact from fiction, if you will. You have to try and get as much information from the first responders as to what they did to compromise the aircraft structure. Because if you don't understand what they did and you go out there and try to do some analysis, all of a sudden you start finding parts where it's like, man, that's a weird place to have that part. Now you're trying to fit a storyline to the parts that may not actually be factual. So there's a lot that goes into just the on-scene portion of the investigation before you really get into data collection and and any kind of analysis. You know, most people
0: don't realize that we often interview the first responders, ask them what they did, what they touched, what they moved, uh, what did, did they have to do to remove the victims or, or put out a fire if there was a fire. Now, interestingly, it doesn't look like there was any fire here. So, you know,
1: yeah. And the first responders, a lot of the first responders, especially the coroner and uh, some of the uh, the police officers and fire departments, they roll up with video And they take still photographs while the wreckage is pristine. That helps me as an investigator because now I can actually see the wreckage as it sits when they first showed up before they did anything to recover the victims or uh, have done any kind of first responder activities. That is critical to determine factually what is there, what is in place, how it was removed, where it was placed after removal, so that you don't get these false positives.
0: Right. More than one accident has been uh, has been solved by looking at the first responder's pictures.
1: Oh, I do it all the time. I, I get a lot of critical information from those first responder pictures, especially the coroner's uh, pictures. Before they start or as they're doing victim recovery, because you can tell about flight controls, you can tell about switch positions and a variety of other things that may get that may get changed uh, during the course of victim removal.
0: Yes. And uh, so we had severe weather conditions, we had icing conditions, and uh, and this is an aircraft that have de-icing boots, which is, uh, you know, very old technology and uh, that may play a, a role here if this airplane iced up and the boots didn't work. Because there are there have been some known issues with the PC-12 with icing up the control lines for the boots. So when you turn the boots on, the, the air pressure doesn't get out to the boot because the line's frozen. You know, if the airplane's been sitting on the ground in a high moisture environment, which it looks like it may have been, uh, or uh, hopefully it was too cold for that to happen, but Uh, I don't know how long this airplane was on the ground and if it attracted any moisture, but that's going to be an item that that they should look at.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're going to start way back where, okay, what initiated the flight? They had to transport a passenger from Reno. They were taking them to Salt Lake City. So how long was the aircraft sitting out on the ramp? Was it in a hangar? Did they pull it out? How long was it out? Um, did it accumulate any kind of snow because there was heavy snowfall uh, in the surrounding area at the time? Of course, we know that the wind was blowing. Um, and so there, there's a variety of things that happened before that airplane ever moved. And one of the things that you just talked about is, did the airplane accumulate snow? Did it melt down? Uh, did, did it turn to ice? Was the airplane de-iced before they actually uh, moved off the ramp? Um, I heard some people, again doing the junior investigator thing that, oh, yeah, well, there was light blowing snow. Well, okay, that's great. That's what the ground weather was. That could determine whether or not there was any kind of snow accumulation that needed to be taken off the aircraft before the airplane uh, initiated flight. But light blowing snow didn't matter during the takeoff and the climb because according to the ADSB data, takeoff and the initial climb appeared to be normal. That is, the airplane took off. It flew a departure, and it's obvious to me, looking at the the cursory or the initial ADSB data, that that pilot may have gone to autopilot almost immediately after takeoff. Which, under these conditions, IMC at night, um, you would expect the pilot, single pilot operation, to go autopilot on. The tracks are very straight. Um, it's now up to the pilot for speed control. And, um, and then, of course, rate and, uh, you know, rate of, of climb. Um, looking at some of that early information, again, he's climbing in the 140 to 160 knot range as they're climbing to altitude. Now, you bring up a good point. Did the pilot take off and initiate uh, the, uh, the ice protection? Because in the Pilatus PC-12, when you go ice protection on, that changes your stall speeds. There's again it it automatically accommodates with ice protection on change in aerodynamics and so stall speeds increase and so with that being said as the pilot's climbing you can see from the ADSB data that again turns on course he's on the airway and is climbing to uh, his projected altitude of twenty five thousand feet it isn't until the latter stages. Of the uh, of the initial climb, that all of a sudden something happens. He's on the airway, and uh, and then the aircraft, as it gets through about seventeen thousand plus feet, coming into eighteen thousand feet, uh, the speeds change, and the heading changes. And so, from an investigative standpoint, this is where adsB data is going to be very critical for the investigators not only for looking at flight track information but now doing aircraft performance because again we can tell a lot from aircraft performance and the the, uh, the performance engineers at the NTSB uh, and and I can't give them enough credit when we were doing the ATR accident in Roselawn and another another a number of other accidents where they can actually see from the speed degradation where there is ice accumulation on the aircraft creating a drag that slows the airplane down um, at various altitudes and they can put a whole performance study together. So that in and of itself is gonna be extremely critical for the investigators as far as putting together a scenario. Was the de-icing system as you talked about, was it one operational Two, when was it turned on? Three, if it was on, did it get overwhelmed by the amount of icing that may have occurred in this particular weather system? And then on top of that, you now have to add in uh, turbulence. And was that light turbulence, moderate turbulence, severe turbulence? That, again, affects the performance of the aircraft. So now you're getting into that phase where the data collection married up with the physical aspects of what you found at the accident site, start to put the storyline together.
0: You know, one of the things that I noticed with the uh, speeds being so low at altitude, I I always look at a a John DeStyle at that in icing conditions, because we know that the ice, Rhyme ice can build up behind the boots and this airplane doesn't have big boots on it. You know, uh, you know, the, as you very well know, the ATR accident in the uh, ice that accumulated just behind the boot disrupted its flight controls and, and uh, caused all kinds of problems. At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com slash careers and apply now.
1: Yeah, and, and you bring up another good point, John, and that is that, yes, you can get accumulations of ice behind the protected surfaces, but there are a lot of unprotected surfaces on the airplane that will accumulate ice. Um, that's just by any, any aircraft design and and we call it the wetted surface. So that is the surface that isn't protected. We know that there are leading edge boots. We know that there is an inlet boot for the, uh, for the engine. Uh, we call it the smile, but that's the, the inlet for the engine. There is a, uh, a boot or some sort of, uh, heated area. To, uh, to protect against ice accumulation. And then on the horizontal and vertical stabilizer, uh, there are also boots as well. But when you look at the front end of the aircraft, the fuselage itself, the belly of the aircraft, especially when you have the airplane in a climb attitude, ice can accumulate on all of those unprotected surfaces. One creates drag, two creates additional weight. We saw a King Air that crashed uh, out here in Colorado uh, some 30-plus, 40 years ago, where during the climb out of Denver, uh, out of um, Centennial Airport, which is the old Arapahoe County Airport, during the climb, they accumulated ice on the belly of the airplane. Couldn't clean it off because it's not protected, added to the weight, increased stall speed, and the airplane crashed. So all of these are factors that the board investigators are going to have to look at and factor in. To see if they play a role in either an initial loss of control by the pilot, or did they contribute to a structural in-flight breakup that led to a loss of control? Yeah, it's and
0: those those are a, a lot of work that doesn't happen in a few days. So that's yeah. not interesting.
1: And and then when you take it into the next level and you start dissecting the uh, ADS-B data. You have to look at the speeds. You have to try to, uh, reason out. You have a pilot who took off. He's single pilot. He's, he's most likely on autopilot. He's climbing normally, uh, or at least a nominal rate. He's in the speed range for what you would expect, uh, not only for the climb, but for, um, for maneuvering speed. If he is in fact in turbulence, cause he's in the, One high 150s uh, into the mid 160 um, speed range, which that is the maneuvering speed range for this particular airplane. But as he gets into, or it starts to uh, go through 18,000 plus feet, all of a sudden the course deviates from a nominal, on course, on the airway uh, uh, direction. The aircraft makes a 90 degree turn. And the question is, what was the basis for that 90 degree turn? Because the altitude during the course of that turn uh, basically stagnated in the low 18,000, 18,001, 18,002, 18,003 range. But the speed started to slow down. 164, 157, 150, 144, down to 138. And the airplane was basically staying at between... 18,200 and 18,300 feet. Now, again, ADSB data, like radar data, rounds up or rounds down. So uh, the fidelity of that data is going to be critical for the board. But the airplane at 18,300 uh, 18, feet got down to as low as 133 knots from 164. So now you have a about a 30-knot slowdown. The question is why, and it it was during that 90-degree turn that took the airplane well off the airway. Again, we also have to look at, if you're in turbulence, we know that the autopilot um, can only maintain the aircraft engaged uh, so much. If you get significant gust loads, movement of the flight controls because of turbulence, the autopilot will give up and it'll disconnect. Now the pilot has to get re-engaged manually to fly the airplane. But they have that pilot has to assimilate what what's going on, what just happened, why am I where I am? Has to have that situational awareness, that presence of mind, to then determine what the next corrective actions are. And and again, as you start to follow the ADSB data, the airplane had stagnated at eighteen two, eighteen three for a while. But then you can see a climb resumed through 18.6. The air, the speed is at 124. 18.9, the aircraft got down to as low as 113. Now, again, if the uh, ice protection is on, the stall speeds go up. The And if I remember right from uh, my training in this airplane, that when you, the stall protection is on, you're now in a stall speed range of around between 105, 107, 109. So, you're getting very close to the ice protection speed, stall speed for the airplane. But then there's something very curious, John, because at 18.9, you're at, uh, the pilot was at 113, according to the ADSB data. But then at 19,000 feet, the speed increases to 118. But then another 100 feet up, 19,100, all of a sudden the speed's at 155. So now you've gone from basically 120 to 155. That's 35 knots in 100 feet over a very short distance. Are those fiction numbers or are that factual numbers? And then the the, uh, altitude does climb to a top out at 19,400. And the uh, speed is at 210 knots. And then the airplane starts heading down. Now, what is interesting with this data, is that the uh, spiraling now course reversal to the right, of course, it is a descending turn to the right. But unlike some of the folks that have chimed in on the internet saying, oh, that's classic spatial disorientation, there is not an escalation, a very high escalation in the airspeed. It hovers between the high 170s, it goes up to 190. Um, it never gets near the VNE speed of about 240 knots. It hovers in the 170 to 200 uh, knot range. It's just that the airplane is in a descending spiral um, to the right, all the way down to 11,100 feet, which appears to be the last uh, ADSB data point, at least that I've been able to access. Then all of a sudden, the airplane goes out of or comes out of that right descending spiraling turn, and has a heading that is more northwesterly. Now, again, it it could be data issues, it could be position error, things like that. That's what the performance engineers are going to have to ferret out to really validate this data. But during the course of that descent, even if it was, quote, uncontrolled, the speed never got up to where you would expect to see a spatial disorientation, loss of control, airplane coming out of the sky like a brick type speed. Now I know what they. uh, a lot of the initial speculation and discussion has been, especially information by the NTSB saying the airplane got up to a 30,000 foot per minute rate of descent. That can be kind of fiction as well. You cannot figure between two data points what the rate of descent is, you have to look at the trend over a long or a larger sample size. So again, once the performance engineers really get into this, those numbers may change.
0: Yes, yes. And of course, we haven't even seen the radar data. There may be more information in the radar data than in the, than in the ADSB as well.
1: Yeah, and you and you're going to get as many sources of data that you can. Because you got to verify and validate it, and then again, once you understand what the speed range was, and and really you can determine what the motion of the airplane is as far as bank angles and pitch attitudes and things like that. Once you understand that, then that helps you understand the breakup sequence in flight.
0: Yes, and there's a lot of radar stations out there in this area of the country because of the military, and the Hoover Dam. I, I I mean, there's a lot of a lot of uh, other sources of information that the NTSB can uh, access uh, if they think they need it.
1: Yep. And so I think that, you know, early on, I mean, the board, (laughs) the board hadn't even, you know, left the accident site before all of the experts on on the internet have got this all figured out. And if it was that easy, then you really wouldn't need to go out there and as we do kick 10 to make that determination. But you start putting out false information or bad information, bad storylines, and you start indicting people or the aircraft itself, uh, even before all the facts, conditions, and circumstances have been developed and really not only developed, but vetted to make sure that they are factual. And then based on a factual analysis is what you come up with to determine not only a probable cause, but to understand whether or not. Is this a one-off? Is this a systemic problem? Is there a problem with the aircraft? These are the the things that enhance safety. Now, again, the internet is lit up with the fact that this particular operator has had multiple accidents in different parts of the country with different types of aircraft over about an 18-month period. Is this a systemic problem with the operator? Um, Are they operating on a shoestring? Do they really have a good safety program or a zero safety program? Are they hiring competent and capable pilots? There's a lot of questions that the NTSB is going to have to answer because not only do they have to look at the current accident, but they have to do a look back to see if there are any systemic issues that come out of the other accidents that have happened to this particular operator. Plus, you also have to look at the FAA. How many times have they overseen the operator? Have they taken any enforcement actions or corrective actions with the operator? So there's a lot of work to be done before just proclaiming, ah, this was a single pilot who got spatial disorientation, lost the airplane and crashed. This guy was a professional pilot. He was flying a very capable airplane. And it's obvious this was not his first flight in this airplane. Therefore, you have to question, okay, what took place? And one of the other things you have to look at from a human factor standpoint is why would the pilot, why would the organization dispatch a flight into weather conditions that based on a cursory look at the uh, the weather that, uh, that existed that night, why would you blast off into that stuff? What was so critical that that flight had to go at that time right now? Could it have waited? Could it have not gone at all? what was pushing it. and and we've seen with EMS and med transport uh aircraft accidents in the past the the hero syndrome that has been brought up a number of times john i would hope that this isn't the case but again that is some aspect as an ex investigator i'd want to look at
0: yeah we in fact did this area of the country we uh, actually, you and i did uh, did some work on, a, on an operator that that condition actually existed it was alive and well yeah the operation uh yeah that's that's one that that uh, cannot be overlooked you know and sometimes the pressure gets put on the pilot not even from the company from the hospitals yep I and, and you know that the, the uh, you gotta go somebody's gonna die if you don't go and we're all human you you get succumbed sucked into that situation it takes Look, a the, will to say no under those conditions.
1: And over the years, the NTSB has looked at this issue, and um, and and again, it's not going away. So the reason, so now the question is, why? What do we need to do? What kind of uh, policies or procedures or oversight need to be implemented so that accidents like this, if in fact it is at least based on. Uh, You know, self-induced pressure, company pressure, hospital pressure, regardless. If that is a finding, what needs to be done so that these types of accidents don't happen again?
0: Yeah, well, we're going to have to keep watching this one to see what develops. Yeah. Clearly, there's not enough information to make any kind of a determination right now, but there's a lot of work to be done.
1: Absolutely. So, I'm looking forward to seeing a, a really the performance report that comes out of the board because I think that's really going to put the entire storyline together.
0: Okay. Well, we'll keep following this.
1: Absolutely, John. And again, you know, for the uh, for the audience, we're looking at it from an axe investigation standpoint. Um, I'm again. I just looked at the ADSB data, and looking at the ADSB data in altitudes and speeds, it threw up red flags for me. And that is critical when you do accident investigation is really having all of the detailed facts, conditions, and circumstances, and then properly analyzing it. So you cannot come up with a cause of an accident 24 hours after the event, having never been there, having never looked at the wreckage, having, having never studied All the factual information besides ADSB data, the mechanical aspects of the aircraft, the training and the background of the pilot, etc. You cannot do that. And I think it's just inappropriate for anybody, including us, to try and come out with a probable cause when we don't have all the true facts, conditions and circumstances that the board is now in the process of developing. Yes. Well, to be continued. Absolutely. So after my rant, John, I am going to leave you with our last words.
0: Now, and the last word, as always, is that if you're going to go flying, do an adequate preparation before you leave home. or, And if you do it before you leave home, do it again at the airport. Make sure you're looking at that weather. This may have a weather element to it, this particular accident. So you want to get the weather where you are, where you're going, and everything in between. I mean, uh, could this accident been avoided if he had gone left or right after takeoff? Maybe. I don't know what the weather was like. We're going to have to wait for the the analysis of the weather to make that determination. But after you get to the airport, do a good pre flight, please. I can't tell you how many accidents I'm looking at with with pre flights and on uh, corporate and and general aviation aircraft where pre-flights are the cause of the accident. They led to the initial problem. And then maybe the pilot mishandled it, but whatever, the pre-flight was the the initiating event. So please do a good pre-flight. If you don't, or if you question yourself, get a person that knows the airplane better than you to help you with a pre-flight. Get a mechanic to help you with the pre-flight. And once you get in the air, put that head of yours on a swivel. Because we just keep looking at mid-airs and near misses, even on the commercial side. You can't even count on air traffic control. There's been like five of them in the last five or six weeks. Two major ones with Southwest and uh, Austin and, and uh, JetBlue in Boston right here in my backyard. I mean, so you really got to pay attention. It's dangerous out there. A lot of new pilots in the general aviation community. Pay attention. So please, please fly safely.
1: Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We
0: are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and
1: it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.